Okay, hello everybody uh, and welcome to the Aristotelian Society. I can see a number of faces there that I recognise, it's nice to see you all. Um, thank you very much um, for joining us this evening. Um, I'm afraid we start, we're starting slightly late, we've had one or two uh, small technical problems. It seems as though everyone is using the internet at the moment, um, so there's a lot more pressure on all our individual domestic uh, services than, than usual. Uh, so I hope we're going to uh, go smoothly tonight. Uh, this is just the second Zoom session that we've run uh, for one of these meetings. The last one did go very smoothly, so, so I'm quite hopeful. Um, but I thought because it will be an unfamiliar um, format for the meeting for probably most of you, um, all of those who, who didn't... Um, come into the meeting last time, um, that I would begin by just kind of running through um, the way that we're hoping that the meeting will work. Um, you'll all find, unless you've unmuted yourself, um, that you should be muted. That's intentional. We're hoping that you will be muted for the duration of the meeting so that people rustling and coughing and so on um, and interrupting her uh, her flow. So you'll be muted right the way through. Um, we usually have in the face-to-face -face meetings at the Aristotelian Society, as those of you who've attended will know, we always have um, a 10-minute break between the talk and the Q&A and we decided last time that it would be a good idea to replicate that because no doubt people will want to stretch their legs, go to the loo, make a cup of tea and so on. Uh, so you'll all be able to do that uh, just as you would have done in the in the face-to-face um, -face kind of meeting. I'll announce um, when the 10 minutes is to be up. Uh, if you would all reconvene, if you intend to join the Q&A at that point, uh, that would be great. As far as the Q&A is concerned, this is the only slightly complicated bit, we're going to use the chat function in Zoom. You should all see a button that says chat, um, which is at the bottom, certainly it's at the bottom of my screen. I expect if you've got the same presentation, it will be at the bottom of yours too. If you press that, you will see uh, the chat uh, facility appear on the side. If you want to ask a question, you can do so by adding a message to the chat. Um, last time we didn't um, operate a hand finger distinction because I thought it might be too complicated for me to manage. Um, but I'm now uh, confident, I think, that I will be able to manage a hand finger distinction. So if I could ask you to write hand if you've got a whole new question, finger um, if you've got a finger on someone else's question, um, that would be great and I will um, pick people out as I normally would in a face-to-face -face meeting and then it's very important for me to say you must remember to unmute yourself or no one will be able um, to hear your question. So the question itself will be spoken, the only thing that you will write in the chat is the indication um, that, you, that you would like to ask a question. I hope that's clear. Okay, is there anything else that I might have forgotten to say? I think that's, I think that's it. Um, and it only remains now for me to do the much more pleasant task of uh, introducing our speaker for this evening, who is, I keep pronouncing her first name wrongly, I must try to get it right, it's Dana 
Nelkin, is that right, Dana? Yeah, right. okay, Dana Nelkin um, from uh, the University of California at San Diego. Um, Dana will be well known to in which she works and indeed beyond, that's to say, uh, ethics, moral psychology, freedom and responsibility, philosophy of law, bioethics. She has a very, very wide ranging portfolio. Um, her books will, will be well known to uh, many of you as well. Um, her 2011 book on freedom and responsibility is a particular favourite of mine. I've gone back to it again and again. Um, but Dana is no one-trick pony. She has a number um, of uh, topics and uh, interests to her credit. She has uh, edited collections on omissions, on forgiveness, as well as on freedom and moral responsibility. Um, she's a, a major figure in our field, and we're very, very fortunate to have her um, here tonight. And uh, the title of Dana's talk tonight, I'm just going to try to find it, is Equal Opportunity, a Unifying Framework for Moral, Aesthetic and Epistemic Responsibility. So over to you, Dana. We're all very much looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, thanks. Thanks so much, Helen. Um, can, you, can you hear me okay? Is this? Okay, great. Um, so let's see. Okay, so um, so thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, it's a it's an honor for me to be here, so to speak, um, and uh, uh, even more meaningful. I'm looking at faces and names that I recognize, um, uh, and those I don't. Um, but it's uh, in some ways even more meaningful just being connected uh, in this way. Um, so very much looking forward to uh, the discussion and your feedback. Um, so I thought um, I would uh, just start with a couple of preliminaries to put the paper in context. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this topic uh, since graduate school when I, um, I was writing a dissertation on free will and I noticed that various authors would say things like, um, uh, there's a lot at stake here in the free will debate, um, notably moral responsibility. Um, and then there would be a parenthetical remark saying something like, um, but notice that moral responsibility is but one kind of responsibility and there are many others. Um, but this tended not to be followed, followed up at least in this. In and, um, so, uh, so I made a mental note um, uh, this was something I wanted to explore further. Uh, and this paper is a kind of attempt to, uh, to bring lots of thoughts together uh, about how this might go, that maybe, maybe there was something right about this, that there really is a unifying framework uh, that applies not only to moral responsibility, but to responsibility in different domains as well. Uh, and actually that brings me to second preliminary point. Um, so I am, uh, I've uh, chosen to, um, to think about the domains of the aesthetic and the epistemic alongside the moral, but I think that um, much of what I have to say will apply to other uh, areas of human activity, um, but there's something really kind of nice about just thinking about the good, the true, and the beautiful and if I added something like sports, just the title wouldn't have worked as well, so, um, but you can 
think about, this is something I'm happy to try to talk about or think about uh, later as well, um, the extension into other, other domains um, in addition. Um, okay, so just to get started, I, uh, I thought I would just do a bit to just motivate the idea of the unifying project. Um, so, um, uh, so just to start by noting some parallels between the moral realm and these other realms. Um, so we speak often of moral obligation, you know, you should keep your promises. Um, but we also use similar language when it comes to uh, the epistemic domain and the aesthetics, um, the aesthetic one too. So um, one, of, one of my favorite examples about myself is um, you ought to have known better that the, you, you ought to have known that the polls were within the margin of error. Um, so we use this kind of ought language when it comes to beliefs. Um, uh, and you ought to have done better with that painting, for example. Um, so obligation or ought talk, uh, we do use in these other domains. Um, and we also uh, uh, blame and praise people for their epistemic and aesthetic um, transgressions and achievements. Um, so, uh, so yeah, just, just to, to go with these examples for, for a little bit. Oh, and I should note, um, I think Nikhil put on the chat that there's the handout. Um, so if this is helpful to you, there's a handout uh, or a link to one on the chat. Um, so, uh, so um, the, the epistemic one, um, so this is just a very autobiographical example from the 2016 election in the United States. For me, um, I made the wrong prediction about which candidate would win. Um, and I blamed myself, I still do a bit, um, for uh, not just having had a false belief, but for having misjudged the evidence um, or not taken it into account in the right way. Um, so had I read more carefully or had I thought more carefully about um, which polls in which states were within the margin of error, maybe I would not have reached the same conclusion um, or certainly with not, without, without the same confidence. Uh, that I did. So, uh, so there's a piece of self-blame, which, um, which applies in the epistemic case. Um, in the, in the aesthetic case, I actually, there are some, I have some pictures on the handout. See, this is a first in many ways, the Zoom, uh, a Zoom talk and pictures, um, but still low tech, because I, I don't know how to put these on at the same time. Um, so, uh, so I have a couple of examples. Um, one, another American example, um, a kind of early TV star, Lucille Ball, um, was being honored, or there was, there was a statue commissioned um, of her in her hometown. You see on the handout, um, the statue on the left, the sculpture on the left, first attempt, um, and there was a lot of blame of the sculptor, um, and then the one on the right was the one that was um, replaced it. So in case you don't have the handout handy, I don't know if that's, okay. Anyway, um, so, uh, so that was one example. And then a second one um, is the, this Tomorrow Forever, which was commissioned for the 1964 World in New York. Um, attributed to Walter Keene, though it turns out there's a um, interesting movie that's been, or been made about, uh, about him. Um, Probably, actually, his wife was the artist. Um, but in any case, it was attributed to him. 
Um, and it's the, he's, he's the artist, or she is, uh, that's sort of known for the big eyes of uh, a bunch of children here. And, um, and the, the, uh, the sort of famous art critic of the time, at the time in the New York Times, wrote about it, I, I quote this just because it is, um, I've been actually, um, it's been interesting reading uh, art reviews, reviews of all kinds of things lately I've been doing. But anyway, this one is, uh, is from John Kennedy and he says, Mr. Keene is the painter who enjoys international celebration for grinding out formula pictures of wide-eyed children of such appalling sentimentality that his product has become synonymous among critics with the very definition of tasteless hack work. Um, and it looks like this isn't just a criticism of the painting, like one would criticize, you know, um, a sunset or something like that. I mean, it's a real, it's a, it, it looks like it's blame of the artist and blame for not living up to standards that he might have reasonably been expected to live up to, or at least that's, that's my thinking about this. Um, Okay, so, so we have these parallels um, in our practices that look um, like they call out for a unified treatment. Um, and we have the, the evidence um, just from the, from the philosophical literature, um, including that on free will, that um, it's more than just moral responsibility that's implicated in the debate. Um, uh, but despite, um, despite these, um, phenomena that sort of point to a unifying uh, picture. Um, there are some really serious asymmetries among the domains, and there's some interesting ways in which the moral and the epistemic share features that the aesthetic doesn't, and that the moral and the aesthetic share that the epistemic doesn't. Um, and each of these might make us think that the, the unifying project is, is actually uh, doomed. Um, so, uh, just to give a couple of ex examples now, and we'll return to these um, later. Um, uh, it, it looks like, um, as many people have pointed out, um, beliefs, unlike actions and omissions, don't seem to be the sort of thing that that are uh, that are under people's control. And you might have thought to get you know some robust form of blameworthiness and praiseworthiness, we have to be thinking about things that are in people's control. So maybe that won't work in the epistemic case. Um, when it comes to the aesthetic case, uh, we, we're back in the realm of action, um, but, um, or at least for aesthetic creation, um, but it, it's much less obvious that anything like obligations um, apply in, in the aesthetic case, uh, for example. Um, and finally, uh, it, it might look like the moral case distinctive um, uh, in virtue of being governed by a number of interpersonal norms um, that you just don't have in any non-moral uh, sorts of cases. So, um, so there, are, there are challenges to a unifying account. Um, despite that, I'm going to plow ahead and uh, give it a try. So, um, so the central claim that I'll defend is that um, despite the apparent asymmetries, the prospects I think are promising for a unifying framework that applies in all three of the domains. And in particular, I'll build a case for the idea that one's degree of blameworthiness or praiseworthiness depends on the quality of one's opportunity in a given case. Okay, so 
Um, so I think there are a number of different ways to approach this, um, kind of bottom-up ways, looking at particular debates within, say, epistemology um, or within aesthetics. Um, but I'm going to do I, I'm going to take a more top top-down approach um, and set out in a kind of whirlwind fashion for you. Uh, set out. Um, uh, an account of moral responsibility, give you a kind of framework, um, and then see how much of it can be transposed to the other domains. So that's the, that's the plan. Um, so to begin, um, uh, it's important just to clarify what is the relevant notion or notions, as it turns out, of moral responsibility. And here I'm going to follow Watson, at least to start, uh, Gary Watson, who distinguishes between two faces or two notions of responsibility. And according to Watson, one is responsible in the attributability sense if one's actions reflect one's having adopted an end, one's having committed oneself to a certain conception of value. To blame someone in this sense is to attribute a moral fault to the agent. In contrast, one is responsible in the accountability sense if it is appropriate to make moral demands of an agent. And our practices of holding one another accountable involve the imposition of demands on people, as he puts it. And in turn, according to Watson, imposing demands is a matter of laying it down that unless the agent so behaves, she will be liable to certain adverse or unwelcome treatment or sanctions. And then Watson connects this idea to um, of attitudes, attitudes like indignation, resentment, and disapprobation that seem to presuppose responsibility um, on the part of their objects. Um, and as he conceives it, either, either the attitudes themselves are disagreeable when experienced by their targets, or they involve dispositions to treat each other, uh, to treat others in generally unwelcome ways. Because the prospect of adverse treatment arises in this way, questions of fairness arise in connection with accountability. And it's for this reason that many have thought that the ability to do otherwise is essential for accountability. So to be blameworthy in the accountability sense, um, the demands that are defining of this notion of responsibility, they themselves have to be fair or just. And then there's this idea that it's only fair or just to make these demands if their objects uh, are in a position or are capable of complying. Okay, so I think uh, it's been responsibility in that second sense, the accountability sense, that's really been central in uh, debates about whether we can be morally responsible agents. So there, there is a substantive view um, according to which being responsible in the attributability sense is sufficient um, for being necessary and sufficient for being responsible in the accountability sense. Um, but I take that to be a substantive view because the, the concepts are, are themselves distinct. Okay, so that's, um, and that you can see on your handout if a little, uh, a short version of that. Okay. Um, okay, so um, let's see. Um, so then one might ask, what is the relationship between accountability um, and desert here, um, a responsibility in the accountability sense and notions of desert? Um, because others have 
sorry. <laughs> Shoot. Um, others have um, uh, have thought about responsibility in terms of dessert, um, and dessert actually comes up a lot in discussion, particularly in the aesthetic uh, realm. We think about dessert for various achievements, for example. Um, uh, and I actually think that the connection is quite close. So my own thought is that while these these two are different concepts, the the satisfaction conditions for being blameworthy, say, in the accountability sort of negative negatively balanced response, um, are the same. So um, so I've argued that elsewhere, but I will just hear. Um, uh, give you a sort of short version um, of what I think the satisfaction conditions are. Um, okay. Um, so going back to the idea of accountability, understanding it in terms of the aptness of our making demands of each other, um, as, as mentioned, it looks like one must have the ability to comply with the relevant demands if one is genuinely going to be accountable. And if we understand the contents of the relevant demands as demands to act in certain ways for the right reasons, then it seems that the ability to so act is required in order for the demands to be apt. And one way of thinking about this is that one needs to have the opportunity to meet the demands, and so an opportunity to avoid wrongdoing. Going a step further, in order to be blameworthy in the accountability sense, one must have not only an opportunity to avoid wrongdoing, but as I would put it, um, a good enough quality opportunity um, or a fair opportunity as it's sometimes put in the, in the legal literature. So in work with my colleague, David Brink, we argue in support of these satisfaction conditions on blameworthy action in the accountability sense, um, that a conception of blameworthiness in terms of the fair opportunity or good enough opportunity to avoid wrongdoing best captures uh, what would otherwise look like a very heterogeneous set of excuses. Um, so the idea is that having a good enough opportunity is really a, it's a function of both one's capacities, one's talents, skills, and so on, um, cognitive and volitional on the one hand, um, but also on the congeniality of one's situation on the other. Um, so we excuse people, um, when they have an impairment, whether temporary or permanent, um, in one of these areas, maybe difficulty with um, impulse control or, uh, or some sort of cognitive impairments. But then we also excuse people um, when th those, all those skills are very highly developed, um, but, um, but the situation itself presents challenges. So uh, for example, uh, if one is under duress or um, situations of uh, poverty or deprivation, uh, just so we accept excuses of all these different kinds, and it looks like we can think of all of these as in some way um, undermining the quality of one's opportunity uh, to avoid wrongdoing. Okay, um, and just um, a bit of a note in this sort of whirlwind uh, presentation of the framework. Um, I'm just going to try to be really ecumenical for the moment um, about whether we should understand opportunities in a compatibilist or an incompatibilist way. So I'm open. I know some of you will think um, that they require to have a 
quality opportunity to avoid wrongdoing when one actually does um, act wrongly, um, that that will require that indeterminism be true um, or one's action be undetermined. Um, but, um, but I think my, my own view is that um, one can understand this idea of equality of opportunity in compatibilist terms. Um, for now, um, just for the interest of seeing how far the, the framework can extend uh, to different domains, I'll just be uh, ecumenical about that until you tell me I have to stop. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Okay. And then um, just to take this back to dessert, I think the, the idea is similar that um, if one um, acts badly when it was actually pretty easy to have acted well. Um, so one's opportunity was quite good um, to have avoided wrongdoing and one still acted wrongly. Um, that's the kind of situation where intuitively I think um, one would be deserving of a negative response. Um, so not only would these demands be appropriate in that case, um, the demands of accountability, but also one would be deserving of a negative response in that case. Okay, um, and, and in fact, I think that's, uh, that's uh, the conditional goes both ways. So also um, having good enough opportunity to do the right thing for the right reasons and failing to take it is uh, both necessary and sufficient for being deserving of a negative response. Okay, and now I just want to note that on my view, nothing follows about, nothing follows from one's being deserving of a negative response about the goodness of receiving what one deserves or about, um, or that anyone has any, any reasons to give you what you deserve. Um, uh, so I flag this for a couple of minutes. Um, uh, so one is just that I think this is a very, it's a non-standard view. Um, I think a lot of people think dessert, just if, if you deserve something that just entails that it's good that you get what you deserve or that other people have reasons to get that for you. Um, so I'm denying what I think is a, is a standard view here. Um, so I'm flagging it because it's non-standard, but also I, um, I think it might help out a bit um, in the unifying projects to have this non-standard view. Um, okay, um, but having said this, it's not that I think there's no connection between dessert and treat people. I, though being deserving doesn't by itself give us a reason to give what they deserve. I think that together with other sort of background conditions, uh, that someone's deserving can be part of a reason to um, to give people what they deserve, and so. I think there's a kind of indirect link with fairness. One has a certain kind of liability um, uh, to being treated in a certain way. Um, uh, perhaps if some, some, some sanction or negative response has to be spread around some way, then the fact that one is deserving um, could put one first in the queue, so to speak. Um, so there is that connection, I think, still to us. Um, Okay, um, and then final piece of this picture is just to note that um, that I think uh, I've been focused very much on blameworthiness, I think, in the negative case, as we often do in the moral case. Um, 
Um, but actually, I think this idea of equality of opportunity does a nice job um, in the positive case too. So, um, so as we saw, if you if you act badly, but it was really easy for you, you had an, a high quality of opportunity to avoid wrongdoing. That seems to put you in a position of deserving some negative response. Um, but the flip side also holds. So if you do, if you act well when it was really hard, um, or you you know where uh, your opportunity involved a high degree of difficulty or sacrifice, um, it looks like that puts you in a position for deserving a positive response too, um, and praiseworthiness in the accountability sense. Uh, okay, so. So in grounding accountability in the nature of one's opportunity, opportunities to meet relevant demands, the quality of opportunity view, as I'll call it, is best categorized as a control view in contrast to views that emphasize the nature of evaluative judgment or quality of will expressed in action or attitude. So this is in contrast um, to views known as quality of will views that um, that have it that blame or the just insofar as your actions manifest some sort of ill will or something of that sort. Um, uh, and as we'll see, I think there are some ways in which I put myself in a bit of a um, increase my quality of opportunity for making this view work because uh, um, I think a view that is a kind of control view. Um, will add challenges to uh, the unifying project um, that other views don't face. Um, but I still think we can do it, so I will forge it. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so, um, so now I want to uh, apply you or see how much of this framework um, that I've uh, just described to you can be transposed to the aesthetic realm. Um, and you might think, okay, well, the framework I've just given you actually provides a nice way of showing that there are some parallels, but also not as many as I might have thought. Um, so a natural first response to this might be that this this initial distinction that we started uh, can come into play. I'd say that artists, for example, are praiseworthy and blameworthy um, in a sense that parallels the moral attributability sense. Um, and for this, as we've seen, they they need not have had opportunities to do well. So artists can express great aesthetic virtues or vices in their art um, as aspects of their true selves. And on this basis, they can be praiseworthy in a very important way. And perhaps that captures all we really need to explain and justify our practices. Susan Wolf way, um, and she's claimed that responsibility in the attributability in the attributability sense is often wrongly seen as a shallow kind of responsibility when it's actually quite deep, reflecting the true self of the agent, person, or artist. And I think she thinks there's a way in which it's actually deeper even than the accountability sense. Um, so, so if we take this, this approach, it allows us to praise and blame artists for their work 
in ways that um, we can take to reflect their own values and judgments and self-defining traits. And that will give us a, one kind of parallel, but it will leave um, an asymmetry at the, at the level of accountability. Okay, so that would be one way of going, which would be a kind of partial symmetry, but not a, not a fuller symmetry. And I think this gets some things right. I think that uh, Wolf is right that attributability, um, as she understands it, is, is, is actually quite deep. Um, but I think we can go even further, and we should in order to capture um, our practices and, um, and, and how we should be thinking of aesthetic responsibility. For it seems that we do hold others to account for bad art, and we take them to be deserving of praising and uh, blaming responses um, in ways that parallel the moral case, as we've seen. Now, moral reasons and norms are, of course, different from aesthetic reasons and norms, but there is a parallel to be made out that can help explain why it is that we can be accountable for bad aesthetic choices and actions as well as moral cases. Um, so in each area, one can meet, exceed, or fall below the relevant standards and be called to account if one fails. So I'm gonna tentatively pr propose that we can bring even more of the framework over to the aesthetic realm. So to see how this will work, um, imagine that the creator of the bad Lucy sculpture or the painter of that big mural with the big eyes um, were capable of creating great art with relative ease and just decided to cut some corners instead. My intuition in these cases is that blame could be perfectly appropriate. Um, and I think, at least for me, I tend to be very uh, um, deferential when it comes to um, making judgments about art. But I think when I, again, maybe, maybe the self-blame case is the easiest for me in, in all of these realms, um, which I'm sure that's revealing of something. But anyway, uh, it seems themselves if they found themselves in this, in this kind of situation. Um, on the other hand, suppose through no fault of their own, they just couldn't do any better. They just, you know, um, lacked the skills uh, to do better. Then it's like, of course, we might criticize the product and even attrib attribute negative artistic traits to the artists, but it would be hard to work up any sort of aesthetic analog um, to indignation, as the critic Kennedy seems to do in his review. And this suggests to me that opportunity is required for justified blame, at least blame that's associated with the failure to meet applicable standards and demands that rest on the recognition that one could have reasonably expected to do better. Okay, so, um, so I think we can bring over quite a bit more of the framework to the aesthetic case, but I definitely want to acknowledge a couple of um, places where things are not parallel. Um, so one is that there's a way in which in the moral realm, um, we're all stuck with, at least as my view, um, we don't opt into morality. We are all just subject to the norms, uh, to moral norms. Whereas at least um, uh, in the case of artists, people who uh, are creators of um, works like the ones I was talking about, um, that seems to be a kind of opt-in um, activity. So. Uh, so I don't think that someone is blameworthy in the accountability sense just because they fail to develop their talents or something of that sort. Um, the idea is that once one has opted into the activity 
and meets the conditions for a responsible agency in the aesthetic realm, then one is governed by the set of standards that one's opted into and becomes a candidate for that special sense of blame and praise. Okay, um, and I should note, here's another place I'm gonna try uh, to be as ecumenical as possible um, about what those standards look like in the, in the aesthetic case. So I know some people are um, happy to talk about aesthetic obligations um, and others are not. Um, so I'm just going to think of the parallel to uh, uh, moral demands resting on moral obligations as um, uh, aesthetic demands resting on some sort of standards. Um, and I'll try to try to be open about what the, the nature of those. Okay. Um, aesthetic responsibility is not parallel in every respect to moral responsibility. Um, but, um, but I think much of this framework, um, including the distinction between attributability and accountability, and the idea that opportunity is at the heart of the conditions for accountability applies neatly in both cases. Okay. Um, okay, so let's turn now to the epistemic case. Okay, so here too, um, we've, we saw lots of parallels in our practices um, in the, between the moral and the epistemic. Um, but again, as with the aesthetic case, one might think, oh, that first distinction um, should be invoked here too. So, um, so we might think people are praiseworthy and blameworthy for epistemic successes and failures in a sense, the moral attributability sense. One's epistemic states and processes reveal oneself to be a certain sort of epistemic agent, one who is attuned to the evidence, good at assimilating disparate information. And perhaps that captures all we really need to explain and justify our practices. Um, but as before, I think that's not the case. For it seems that we do hold others to account for them to be deserving of blaming and praising responses in a way that's parallel to the case. At least some are willing to speak of epistemic obligations and even more of epistemic norms that seem to invoke such norms, like think, put the pieces together, stop deluding yourself, try harder. And we blame in ways that go beyond the making or even uttering of evaluative judgments, like, you know, can't you see? I tentatively propose here too that a great deal of the framework set out for the moral case applies here in the epistemic case. And just as with opportunities in the moral case, the quality of one function of and one's capacities, both cognitive and volitional on the other. So we're to return to the case of the reader of the poll results on the eve of an election, that was me, um, whether one is blind the results were within example depends on a variety of factors, including the evidence of individual state results reported, um, whether one had a steps, um, does one know what mark um, whether one was subject to such strong wishful thinking that one could not recognize and control for 
for example. Of course, it will be difficult in, a, in any given case to, um, to know whether one's quality of opportunity was good enough um, uh, and to know the relevant and one's capacities at the time. Um, but whether or not one is blameworthy depends on all of these different factors. Okay, so um, if you'd like other cases about, I think, um, people forming beliefs, you know, the belief that climate change is a hoax, for example, given the available evidence is a case where um, we, uh, in a way that goes beyond just evaluating their um, epistemic character, so to speak, or their, or, or what the, the belief manifests. Um, uh, and, uh, but use, use whatever, wh whatever cases move you <laughs> to think that, the, that these parallels really apply. Um, okay, so, uh, so that's the, how the framework applies in the other domains. Um, Okay, but thinking particularly about cases like the climate change case might lead you following objection. And I'll just turn now, I think, yeah, but the rest of the, rest of the talk will um, consider some objections. Um, one is just this thought that, uh, well, maybe, Maybe there's something moral going on in these cases after all. Um, so maybe there are no pure cases. Talking as though um, we blame the artist in some sort of, you know, aesthetic way rather than a moral way. And um, in the epistemic way, the epistemic blame going on as opposed to moral blame. But maybe these cases at bottom are really moral. Um, so I want to acknowledge, um, I think we can distinguish between mixed cases and pure cases. Um, uh, cases that have blameworthiness mixed in at the very least. Um, and then a pure case would be one without any sort of moral implications. Um, if there are such things. Uh, it's, um, some cases, and maybe most, maybe all, as it turns out, are mixed in some way. So in the, in the case of the Lucy sculpture, for example, the sculptor was committed to a contract to produce a likeness of Lucille Ball, um, and he failed to do that. Um, so, uh, so there are clearly some legal and moral would hold him responsible in those ways. But, um, but, but interestingly, um, the Tomorrow Forever case, I think, is a bit different. This is one reason I chose this case. Um, they interviewed there about the, the mural, and they said, this was exactly what we commissioned. This is what people love. They love this sentimental stuff. So we got exactly what we contracted. There's a kind of moral... Um, failing here. Now, you know, we can, we can try to find a moral failing, you know, maybe uh, the Keynes should have been representing artists in a way, in a better way, maybe they had some other moral obligations that they were failing in. Um, 
and I, I, I'm open to this possibility. Um, but it is interesting that the review of these things um, and, uh, and really does seem to be focused on the artists having come up short with respect to the aesthetic demands. Okay. Um, in these, at least some cases are clearly mixed. Um, you know, doctors should read the charts um, and form beliefs about whether certain kind of medications would cause an allergic that sort of thing. Um, uh, that looks like, at, at, the, at the least, it's a kind of mixed case um, where you have a uh, moral obligation. To... Um, but there might be other cases that are, are better candidates for pure cases. Um, so in, the, in my making the wrong inference of, uh, when it comes to the or just making a mathematical mistake in a calculation, I might, uh, in those cases, maybe nothing moral hangs on it and uh, for one's uh, failings in those cases, uh, appropriately blame oneself, I should say. Um, okay, so, uh, it might be argued that all cases are mixed cases at the end of the day. Um, and so all responsibility is ultimately moral. And so this sort of unifying project, it's too easy in a way, just everything have parallels. So uh, Cliff, William Clifford, for example, famously wrote um, that it's wrong always everywhere and for anyone to believe anything upon text. I think it's reasonable to read the wrongness there as moral. Um, and th this view, which is sometimes actually called moral evidentialism, suggests that there are no not um, But I think even if Clifford is correct here and moral norms apply in all cases of belief formation, we can still conceptually separate the moral and epistemic norms, blame and praise for how one fares re with respect to them. So the moral norms on this view might simply be to believe on evidence that is sufficient to epistemically justify or epistemically or beliefs. In that case, the epistemic norms are themselves purely epistemic. And then in addition, you have this moral norm that tells you to follow the epistemic norms in all cases. Um, so I think we can still distinguish conceptually between one's epistemic and moral performance, even one, if one is always doing both sorts of things when one acquires. Okay, so I think those sorts of worries can be addressed. Um, um, moral evidentialism, I think, is not the only challenge here, and maybe in some ways is a challenge that comes from um, practical or moral thought that actually uh, determine, um, determine what the epistemic norms are. Section in the written version of the paper, uh, we shouldn't worry about that. Um, but I think just in the interest of time, I will, um, too much into that, but I, I do get serious um, 
everywhere. And um, there weren't any pure epistemic norms even, um, as I've been claiming, um, but even, even what look like epistemic norms are in fact infected by, uh, and then I think that would be a more worrisome uh, challenge for the, the unifying project or the project of showing that you have these parallels in responsibility. Uh, um, but I think we should resist the idea that there is moral encroachment, at least about certain epistemic norms. Okay, uh, so if you haven't read the paper, to talk about it also in the Q&A. Um, okay, so let me turn to a second objection, which is um, that, uh, a, a worry that there's just something really special and unique about the moral case. And that's that um, uh, moral norms are, that are, on which our practices of blame and praise rest, um, are really obligations and in, uh, in So you might say in contrast, when it comes to pure epistemic norms, either there aren't any obligations at all, or even if you are okay talking about oughts or obligations, they're not obligations to others. They're just, you know, we ought to form certain beliefs. So Gary Watson emphasizes this point about the second personal nature of moral reasons precisely to contrast moral accountability with what he takes to be thin conceptions of moral responsibility or a, what he calls a weaker notion of just answerability. So reasons are second personal when they appeal to the legitimate demand of others that one not treat them in certain ways. Only a practice that centers on interpersonal norms or obligations to others qualifies as a practice of accountability for Watson since accountability is itself an interpersonal notion involving a relationship, a relation between the accountable agent and the one to whom she is accountable. So if that's right, um, and, it, and it's also true that when it comes to these norms in other domains, the epistemic and the aesthetic, we don't have anything like that, these sort of interpersonal obligations, um, then this idea would transpose would be undermined. Okay, so to illustrate the reasoning, um, Watson offers us a case of a person who he thinks is responsible only in the attributability sense, but not in the accountability sense, precisely because the person doesn't have any obligations to other people. Um, so he describes a case of someone betraying her ideals. Um, let me see if I put this. Yeah, I, I, I put this on the handout. Um, so if someone betrays her ideal, I'm just quoting from Watson now, if someone betrays her ideals by choosing a dull but secure occupation in favor of a riskier but potentially more enriching one, or endangers something of deep importance to her life for trivial ends, then she has acted badly, cowardly, self-indulgently, or at least unwisely. But by these assessments, we are not thereby holding her responsible as distinct from holding her to be responsible. To do that, we would have to think that she is accountable to us or to others, whereas in many cases, we suppose that such behavior is, quote, nobody's business. Unless we think she is responsible to us or to others to live the best life she can, and that is a moral question, we do not think she is accountable here. If her timid or foolish behavior also harms others, 
and thereby violates requirements of interpersonal relations, that is a different matter. Okay, so, um, so I take it that Watson here is arguing um, in the following way. So I've, I've broken this down into two main premises on the, on the handout. The first is the idea that unless the agent owes it to others to act differently, in which case she would have a moral obligation after all, then she's not accountable to us or others. And if she's not accountable to us or others, then she's not accountable for these actions, but is rather responsible in the attributability sense alone. So therefore, when it comes to epistemic or aesthetic responsibility, where we also fail to find obligations to others, there can be no analog to moral accountability. Okay, so that looks like uh, a kind of argument from the sort of special nature of moral standards to the idea that accountability really only has a home in the moral realm. Okay, so uh, both of these premises, um, and I, I, I do in the paper question both um, Right now, I'll just focus on the first of the premises, uh, the first one, in order to, um, uh, to show that this kind of argument won't work. Um, so even, even in the moral realm, I think we find um, that we can be accountable for our actions, even in places where we can be morally accountable for our actions, even in places where we don't have obligations to anyone in particular. Um, or anyone. Um, okay, so just to just to focus on a couple of these, um, not totally uncontroversial, um, but just to make plausible this thought, um, or to try, um, think about obligations of bene benevolence. So it's plausible that we have duties to make others' lives go better when it would not require much in the way of sacrifice, at the least. Um, even if we think others have no right to demand this of us, um, that they, they don't have, they don't have rights, um, uh, that call, that, that suggest that we owe to any, any particular people that we do this. Um, even in a rescue case where you might think we have a very strong obligation to act, you might think that it's not because we owe it to this particular person, but that we simply have an obligation of benevolence in this case. Um, I realize that is somewhat controversial, but that's one sort of case. Um, and another um, that has intrigued me um, in thinking about forgiveness is, uh, it seems to me that there are cases in which uh, someone has wronged you um, and then they feel great remorse about it. They do everything they can to make up for the wrong. Um, they, uh, it seems like that could be a case where one ought to forgive, um, where one has what I would call a moral obligation. And yet it's not clear that the, the person who's wronged you has any sort of right to ask you for it. Um, and it's, so it's not clear that you owe it to that person. Um, uh, and yet it seems like it could be morally um, it morally such that you ought to do it. 
Um, so there too just seems to me another kind of case, and I have more in the paper, but I too suggest that even in the moral case, we can think that one can be, um, that one morally ought to do things, be appropriately held accountable for failing to do those things, um, and yet not having owed it, uh, not having owed to another person um, the thing that one ought to do. Okay, so if that's right, then, um, then the first premise doesn't get off the ground. Um, and so we can, we're sort of free to think that uh, there might be other norms to which people, for which people can be accountable for violating, even if they aren't owed to another person. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, okay, one further reason to think that um, that the conclusion can't be right is just that it seems like we talk about certain people having entitlements to blame or standing to blame in moral cases. And the same thing seems to be true even of Gary Watson's case that we might think her close friends have some kind of standing to blame in this kind of case, even though she doesn't owe to anyone to have her best life or anything like that. Um, and that suggests this idea of standing or entitlements to blame seems like it goes with the accountability sense in particular of responsibility, whereas anyone could be in a position to make an evaluative judgment um, in a way that goes along with attributability. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. So, um, Uh, so I so I think um, though this is a very interesting argument, and I'm sure much more can be said um, about the sort of special qualities of the moral case. Um, at least this way of trying to distinguish the moral from the other domains, I think, doesn't go through. Um, now, I think that what this means is that the general framework applies, um, but that there are still general genuine and important specific differences depending on the domain in question, um, such as the nature of the relevant attitudes, what sorts of attitudes would be um, appropriate when people violate or fail to live up to the standards, um, the conditions and particular persons and particular relationships who are entitled to blame, that might have a lot of variation uh, depending on the domain. Um, so that the same general framework can apply in the in the different domains, um, and that that's a framework that includes at its base the idea of evaluating what one does given one's opportunities. Okay, so uh, so that objection suggested there's something just special about the moral that doesn't apply in any other domains. Um, and then the last objection that I'll turn to is um, one that specifically um, targets the idea that the, the framework um, can be transposed to the epistemic case. So one objection that's often been made to the entire idea of epistemic responsibility is that beliefs are just, they're not actions and they're just not in our control. Um, so they're just not candidates for responsibility, blameworthiness, or praiseworthiness. A number of responses have been given to that objection, including those that deny that control is necessary for responsibility in general. Um, 
uh, and those that deny that beliefs are not in our control at all. Um, given that I've embraced a conception of moral responsibility that's rooted in opportunity and control, I have to offer um, the latter kind of response. I have to suggest that there's some way in which beliefs are in fact under our control or that we have opportunities to avoid um, uh, either bad beliefs or bad belief formation um, of certain kinds. Um, and so I'm going to just say a bit, um, uh, again, a very kind of um, sketchy framework, um, building on some tools that we can take with us from the moral realm to the epistemic. Okay, so the first thing to note is that even in the moral realm, not all objects of responsibility are voluntary actions or decisions to act or refrain. So we often hold people responsible for omissions, including omissions um, where at the time of the omission, one was actually just unaware that one was omitting anything of importance. Um, and we typically hold people responsible for at least some of the consequences of their actions or decisions. Um, so the fact that beliefs are not themselves something we do doesn't by itself preclude that they're objects of responsibility at the outset. And here I'm going to draw on some resources from tracing theories in the responsibility and in the moral responsibility and actually the, uh, um, uh, those that make explicit mention of consequences um, of one's voluntary actions or just as I prefer opportunities. Okay, so on the, on the most well-known of these sorts of theories, one's moral responsibility for a later action or omission or consequence traces back to a prior decision or active agency such that one could foresee at that time the risk of the later action or omission or consequence. So, you know, I guess what a, a, a paradigm example of this is someone who's, um, I think you all call it something different in the UK, but uh, drunk driving, we would call it here. One might not have, um, be making, uh, one might not meet the conditions for a responsible agency at that moment, but if earlier they had met the conditions um, when they could have given their car keys to someone else um, or not had that extra drink, then we hold them responsible for the, the driving later um, because they had the opportunity earlier or they made the decision to keep the keys in the pocket in their pocket or something of that sort. Um, so on the tracing view I favor, um, what you need, what you need to trace back to to have responsibility for something later is that might not be in your control in the relevant way later, is you have you have to trace back to a good enough opportunity. Um, but unlike some of these traditional views, uh, traditional tracing views. I don't think that you have to trace back to um, a point of decision or action because as many people have pointed out, we don't have that many moments of actual decision uh, or exercises of agency of this kind, or at least empirically, it seems suspect that we do. But one has to have the opportunity and the idea is that one can have the opportunity uh, without actually exercising agency. Um, just a certain kind of general awareness of risk is enough to give you an opportunity, even if you don't make a decision one way or the other about it. Um, okay, so uh, so I call this the opportunity tracing view. Um, 
uh, and I developed this in, in other work uh, with Sam Rickless um, in more detail, applied to the omissions case. Okay, so the objection that naturally arises here is that um, anything like a sort of foreseeability condition just isn't met when it comes to beliefs. Um, we do, and we're passive with respect to them. We can't anticipate, typically anyway, what we will come to believe in its particular content. Um, we might be able to gather a lot of evidence intentionally um, and foresee coming to some sort of belief, but we can't foresee what belief will come to. That's the whole point of intentionally investigating something. Um, and I think this is a, this is a serious um, objection. Um, I'll just say, a, a, because I, I see time, time is running out, um, uh, I'll just say a little bit in response to this worry. Um, and that's just to say, these sorts of questions, I think, are really deep and difficult in the moral realm as well. And there are at least two dimensions where one can, um, I think, uh, be more expansive about the conditions uh, uh, of the opportunity to have avoided coming to the, to the belief in question. So one of those dimensions um, is whether we think someone must actually be aware of the risk or whether they just have to be, have been able to be aware of the risk of coming to uh, a problematic belief. Um, and I see the appeal of softening things so that the foreseeable, foreseeability condition just is something like a uh, a condition that one one has to have been able to, or one should have known, or should have thought of it. Um, uh, the view I've defended has been um, the uh, the more committal view that you actually have to be aware of the risk in some way. Um, but there's another dimension I think also where we can um, be more expansive, and that's to say that. Um, uh, the dimension of the coarseness or fineness of grain of what we what it is that we have to be aware that we're risking. So we don't have to know exactly um, what bad thing we're risking. For example, that by leaving out ice outside of one's shop, um, you know, the neighbor to the left will will slip on it and fall. We just have to know that we're risking some sort of uh, fall for on the part of someone. For example. And so I think by being very expansive about the coarseness of grain, of what it is that we have to be aware of um, when we have our opportunities, um, uh, this will help, help us preserve more of our mm, actual practices of holding people responsible uh, for their beliefs. Uh, so, uh, so just to take, I, I didn't realize I had so many personal examples here, but here's another one. Um, not too personal, don't worry. Um, uh, if I found myself engaged in self-deceptive thinking when it comes to an important question concerning my children, then it looks like I have the opportunity to learn from the experience and take steps to avoid doing something similar in the future, even when the specifics are entirely unpredictable at the earlier time, as it tends to be with parenting, in my experience. Um, and indeed, I sometimes do blame myself for not seeing something I should have as a parent. And I trace that blame to the idea that I had enough awareness of risk at an earlier time and failed to act. That doesn't require any decision or exercise of agency of any kind, but it does re require an opportunity not taken. 
So if that reaction is apt, then it makes it more plausible that we have opportunities to avoid acquiring beliefs for which we can then be properly blamed. And the objection to this tracing opportunity view as applied to belief here loses at least some of its force. Okay, um, let's see. Um, so, of course, any general account of accountability for attitudes will leave itself open to the possibility that some of our previous practices were either over-inclusive or under-inclusive. And I think that's just the potential cost of offering any general well-motivated set of conditions. The account explored here, the quality of opportunity view together with its tracing component, the tracing opportunity view, isn't, it's not unique in this respect. And I think I have to be open to a kind of revision in our actual attributions of responsibility. Um, okay, uh, let's see. So just to, just to sum up, um, the framework I've sketched recognizes continuity, but not perfect symmetry among moral and aesthetic and epistemic responsibility and desert. The aspects that are continuous, though, are ones that implicate free will and control, understood as having opportunities to meet or to exceed standards to which others could in principle hold us. This gives us one way of capturing the important data points of those asides in the work on free will that take our moral responsibility to be one kind of responsibility among many. And more importantly, I believe it accommodates our practices that incorporate different types of blame and praise. Finally, whether the framework that I've just sketched for you is correct or not, I'm hopeful that continuing to explore promises a better understanding of each particular type of responsibility, including the moral itself. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Dana. Um, for those who don't have their microphone switched on, there's a way to show your reaction. If you look at the uh, menu beneath your screen, there's a little, and you click on reactions there, you can clap just like that, see. So uh, there are technological solutions to nearly everything, it seems. Um, if only that were true. Anyhow, um, so this is the point at which we're going to have our little break. Um, it's quarter to seven now. If we could come back, please, at five two. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be okay because everything's gone a little bit. We started a little bit late. Perhaps we can end a little bit late. I hope that won't cause too many problems for people. We'll, we'll run over by five or 10 minutes um, in order that we've got sufficient time for the discussion. So if we could come back at uh, 18.55 precisely um, for the Q&A, that would be lovely. So uh, see you all then. Thank you.